All right. So I'll begin reading at Revelation 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And when he had sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Again, let's pray. Lord, again, we ask for your blessing on the reading and preaching of your word. Uh, We do pray that you'd bless uh, not only those, but the keeping of it. Give us eyes to see the things written in your wonderful word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's, it's my hunch that uh, this book in the Bible is one of the most neglected books in the Bible. And I say that with some irony because there is so often or has been a fascination with it on the part of Bible teachers and Bible students And yet when it comes to our own personal reading of the Bible, I wonder how many of us have sat down and methodically read through the revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John. Maybe at some times or at some point in our Christian lives, we've said, well, just I give up, forget about it. You know, Luther, the 16th century reformer, he didn't believe that it belonged in the Bible, and I think he was wrong. And uh, so do many other Christians. Uh, He had many good things, many wonderful truths that he preached and taught, but that was not one of them. And uh, some of you uh, grew up in a, quote, reformed church, and uh, you have not had the experience, perhaps, of sitting under other uh, views of Bible prophecy, such as uh, dispensationalism and that sort of thing. And we'll talk about some of these things as we move through uh, this book of Revelation. Personally, I did. I grew up in that context and uh, came out of that through um, prayer and study of the Word and other good teachers. Um, but as we will see, I, I hope you will see this and come to this conclusion if you haven't, that reading Revelation and hearing it and doing what is written in it is a blessing. I was talking with a fellow pastor recently. I was like, well, you preached through Revelation. What commentaries and sources did you use? I mean, I have my own favorites. And of course, he's going to have his. And he told me. And uh, we come from different perspectives within that uh, Reformed perspective. And he did tell me this, though. He said that is one of the most fruitful and profitable and encouraging studies I've ever done as a pastor. And uh, I was thankful to hear that. So as we talk about the introduction to uh, this book, there are basically three things I want us to think about tonight and understand. First is the time frame. Uh, That is in our text for tonight, but we'll speak to that more broadly when it comes to the book of Revelation. Then we'll talk about the message itself, and that's found in our few verses in the introduction there, verses 1 through 3. And then we'll make several points of application at the end uh, to our own day and time. Because it does apply to the here and now. 
as you'll see. So let's talk a moment for, or rather about, the uh, time frame and context of Revelation. There are basically four prominent views, have been four prominent views within Christendom. And uh, the first one is the futuristic approach. And that approach has said that chapters 4 through 22 are all future events yet to take place, and they will take place just prior to the second coming or the second advent of Jesus Christ. And uh, this will happen at the end of time. And of course, I've said already, I grew up in that context and was a little confused sitting under that teaching. Uh, but there, there are good men, godly men who hold to that view. There has also been the historicist view. There's the futuristic and then second, the historicist view. And that view says that the events, these things in Revelation are all symbolic they represent the things that uh, will happen throughout the history of the church. There's kind of this cycle, and they are representative of just the various seasons within the uh, church of Jesus Christ. Then there is the idealist uh, perspective of Revelation. And there are those who are really hesitant. I, I can be sympathetic with this, as perhaps you can too at times. They're hesitant to label and identify what these symbols represent. And so, similar to the second view, uh, they understand Revelation to portray events that will happen between Christ's first and second coming. His first and second advent. And historically, there has also been the preterist view. So, have got to use technical terms. There are labels, we have to use them. And uh, this preterist view, uh, well, the word preterist really just means fulfilled. It is the view that uh, all of the things written in this book have been fulfilled and uh, that the book refers to events leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 or perhaps to the fall of the Roman Empire uh, in the 5th century AD. And... uh, there are actually some within that camp who have said that the second coming has already taken place. And that is a big no-no to say that. That's part of one of the essentials of Christian doctrine. Now, let's be fair because within that preterist camp, there are also partial preterists. And what I mean by that is that there are some who would say that not all of the things in Revelation have been fulfilled, but a a large portion of these things have been fulfilled. And yes, they were fulfilled at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But not everything in Revelation has been fulfilled. And I say that because I've heard preachers and teachers refer to the preterist view and they they lump all the preterists into one, one category. And I just, I don't think that's fair. And so um, partial preterist, as opposed to a full preterist, a partial preterist will acknowledge that there are some of the events in Revelation that have not yet been fulfilled. Um, And so some of the partial preterists would say the first 19 chapters have been fulfilled, but parts of Revelation 20, uh, Revelation 22, and before it, Revelation 21 have not yet been fulfilled.
within that camp, just so you know, there, there are um, men who are, you know, close to us, near to us, have been so. Uh, Ken Gentry, R.C. Sproul, uh, Keith Matheson, Greg Bonson, and so forth. And there are, there are others, by the way. So then what is my approach? I'm not asking you tonight to believe something because I believe it. You need to search the scriptures yourself and see what the Bible says. But it is important that you know where I'm coming from as we move through the book. Well, first of all, is there any expert in the book of Revelation? Really? Come on. Is there any expert over the Bible? Now, Bible scholars, some would like to think they're experts. uh, But a scholar means what? A learner. So even a scholar is always supposed to be learning. And uh, my point is, I'm not going to stand up here and be, you know, dogmatic about everything because I confess right now, I do not uh, know every detail of Revelation. Um, But my view is the partial preterist view that this book was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem prior to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, which occurred in AD 70. And there are reasons as to why I believe that. And this is contrary to the popular view that Revelation was written around AD 95. And uh, a lot of the weight for that date revolves or hinges upon the writings of an early church father, Irenaeus. And uh, there are good sources to read that are Um, contrary to that view of the AD 95 date. But again, let me just give you about three or four reasons as to why I hold to this view. And these are all not, these are not all my own, but they are views that I have adopted. So now they are mine, just for the record. Um, So what are the reasons as to why I hold to this view? Um, First of all, Revelation continues where Daniel left off. Daniel the prophet in the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to turn to that and just read from chapter 12. I think it's verse 4, somewhere around there, what it says. By the way, the, the book of Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel corresponds, it parallels with the book of Revelation. And uh, the reformer, John Calvin, did not write a commentary on Revelation, but he did write one on Daniel. And uh, it's very good. Uh, You can file that one away. Uh, Daniel 12 and verse 4 says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Why is that important? Well, he tells Daniel that the book is to be sealed, it is to be closed, it is to be shut up until the time of the end. And so guess where Revelation leaves off uh, at the very end of the book? In Revelation 22, uh, in verse 10, uh, it says, John said, He said to me, do not seal the words of, of the prophecy of this book. For the time is at hand. The time is near. It is about to happen. Okay, so it surely seems to me that Revelation leaves off where 
Daniel, or picks up where Daniel left off. By the way, if you're wondering, are we in the last days? Are we in the last days? I remember in the early 90s talking with people about this, and I was just repeating what other preachers said, and I would say, well, the stage is set. You know, we're in the last days. Well, guess what? Guess how long we've been in the last days? 2,000 years, right? Hebrews 1 and verse 1 uh, tells us as much, right? Um, let me just read it to you. It's kind of hard to maneuver with this stand, but you'll, you'll bear with me, I'm sure. I don't need to give commentary about those things. I know that, but it just happens. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, it says, God, in verse 1, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world's. And so since the first coming of Jesus Christ, we have been in the last days. And that's important to know when we're talking about biblical prophecy. Okay, so Revelation continues where Daniel left off. Second, I believe that Revelation agrees very much with Jesus's Olivet Discourse. And that's very important. Revelation agrees well with Jesus's Olivet Discourse. Now, this isn't a sermon on Matthew 24, but let me just give you some of what is going on in Matthew 24 so you can see what I mean. In Matthew 24, um, Jesus makes this statement. Well, in verse 1, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. His disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. In in verse 2, it says, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus points to the temple. He says, Not one stone is going to be left upon another that's not going to be thrown down. What do you think he's saying? This temple is going to be leveled one day. And so then... Um, It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him in verse 3, privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And the second question is, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so really, there's at least two questions there. When will these things be? The tumbling down of the temple and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so Jesus answers that question or those questions with the Olivet Discourse. And so in Matthew 24, verses 1 through about 34, he is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, uh, some of your Bibles might have that as a heading there in that section. And it's, it's obvious, I think, that he's talking about that. And then in Matthew 1, 34, Six, he begins to talk about his second coming. And so in Matthew one thirty six, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Well, what is the contrast? In verse four of Matthew 24, he answers them. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. 
For many will come in my name and say, say I am the Christ and so forth. Then he starts to give all these signs that will occur um, around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But concerning the second coming in verse 36, he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. And so he talks about his second physical advent, his coming, his second coming to the earth. So why do I make that point? Because Jesus prophesied of the destruction of the temple. And we know from history that happened by the Romans when they invaded Jerusalem. They starved out the inhabitants of Jerusalem and they took the city. They burned it to the ground and they destroyed the temple. Why is that important with the book of Revelation? Well, um, in the book of Revelation in chapter 11... Guess what John is told to measure? The temple. Revelation 11 and verse 1, John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Then he goes down and he measures it. And by the way, um, Hopefully, we'll get to Revelation 11 and we'll see this, but the measuring of the temple is not a good thing. It's an action that indicates calamity and destruction. But for for the sake of tonight, notice he's told to go and measure the temple. And uh, it says the altar and those who worship there. When it says worship there, that's in the present tense at the time of John's receiving this vision, this message and the writing, I guess, of this book. So what is the point? The temple is still standing. Um, now, I, I suppose there are some who could say, well, this was retrospect or something like that. But there's the present tense, and I'm taking it literally at face value. And by the way, we'll talk about the literalness and the, the type of literature that this is in just a moment. Okay, so Revelation agrees with Jesus' Olivet Discourse, which talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. That is significant because I'm saying that in Revelation 11, we see that the temple is still standing. It had not yet been destroyed. That occurred in A.D. 70. So if John wrote this letter or this book, while the temple was still standing, it was either in the year of A.D. 70 or before A.D. 70, before the destruction of the temple. Hopefully that makes sense. There's a third reason. And uh, Revelation marks the final first century separation between Judaism and Christianity. And uh, that is at least hinted at in chapter 3 and verse 9. Because Jesus says there, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. So a synagogue was the place of worship. That's actually where the Jews worshipped in Jesus' and the apostles' day, apart from the temple. I indeed will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews, but are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you, that is the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians. And and what's the point? The point is that here 
he is talking about those who are false Jews. Remember Romans 2 says those who are truly Jews are Jews inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart. Those who are truly born again are true Israelites indeed. We are the circumcision, Paul tells the church in Philippians chapter 3. So there are false Jews. False Jews are merely Jewish people externally, ethnically, never being born again and having their hearts circumcised or born again, having a new heart. And so the point is, let me ask you the question. In the early church, the very early church, who is one of the greatest persecutors of the church? The unbelieving Jewish people. Right? It was at the hands of unbelieving Jewish people, the ones that John tells us Jesus came to. He came into his own. His own received him not. The unbelieving Jewish people handed him over. They falsely accused him. They tried him, found him guilty when he shouldn't have been guilty. They turned him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. And even after his resurrection and ascension, you find in Acts chapter 2, the church receiving the Spirit being poured out there. The church grows. They start to advance in number. Who is there resisting the growth of the church? It's the unbelieving Jewish people. And uh, you find that throughout the New Testament. And the point is, there was coming a day and time at which there would be this breach between Judaism and Christianity. For a while, they were sort of intermingled. Both had for their hub Jerusalem and Palestine. So the first uh, Christians were Jewish people who believed in Jesus Christ. And so there was going to be this breach. In fact, there was coming a day when it would be no longer possible to commit blasphemy by offering animal sacrifices after Jesus himself had offered his own perfect sacrifice. Because that's what's happening when, when the Jewish people, after the resurrection of Christ, when they continue to offer sacrifices, really, that was blasphemy. It was saying that Jesus' sacrifice was not the one true, perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 10 makes that point. And so in Hebrews and elsewhere, they're call, you know, the author's calling God's people to come out and be separate from among them, from the Jewish people. And so at some point, it would be impossible for the Jewish people to offer sacrifices in the temple. Why? Because the temple would be destroyed. Okay, so you can kind of see part of the message of Revelation is that there's this indictment against uh, the unbelieving Jewish church. And uh, God is dealing with them for their unbelief and for their persecution of his true people, the Christian church. Then there's a fourth uh, reason as to why I hold to this partial preterist view that um, portions of Revelation have already been fulfilled uh, in AD 70 or prior to AD 70. And that is Revelation at least appears, I want to be fair, it appears to prophesy about the Roman emperor Nero who died in A.D. 68. And that's in Revelation 17. Um, in Revelation 17, you have this description of the great harlot, of the kings of the earth, of the scarlet beast, of the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. 
And then one of the angels interprets the meaning of these things. And so um, that's a little later in the chapter. The angel in verse 7 asked John, why did you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and so forth. Verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, if you have studied ancient Rome, you will know that there were seven hills in Rome. They each had different names, and don't ask me what they were because I don't know. I have to go look at my book and find out again. But uh, they, they were known for these seven mountains. And so this is, I think, clearly an allusion to uh, the city of Rome. Verse 10, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue for a short time. So if verse 9 is talking about ancient Rome the headquarters of the ancient world. And then verse 10 is talking about seven of her kings. It says that there is one who is, that is, is reigning in existence at that time. And that one is the um, sixth one. Because five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. The seventh one has not yet come. So if you calculate, if you do a little math, and you go back in history, you will find uh, that the first emperor of Rome was Julius Caesar, 49 B.C. to 44 B.C. He's fallen. He's already come and gone. Then there was Augustus who began reigning in 31 B.C. He's come and gone. There is Tiberius, that's number three, A.D. 14 to 37 And then there is Gaius, also known as Caligula. And uh, he reigned from 37 to 41. Then there's Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54. So that's five who have fallen. Well, then who would the one is be? The one who comes after Claudius. And that is Nero, who reigned from AD 54 to 68. The one who came after him is Galba. He reigned from AD 68 to AD 69, roughly. And by the way, it says about the seventh one, the one who would come, he, he must continue a short time. So he reigned, Galba, less than two years. And so then I, I understand this to mean that it's referring to Nero. And so Revelation was written at least during Nero's reign, uh, who was the sixth king or emperor, the one who now is, that is, at the time of John's writing. Nero died in A.D. 68. And of course, there is debate as to whether or not John the Apostle was exiled to Patmos during Nero's reign or Domitian, who came later. Uh, just just for, for your information, your, your own records. All right, second, 
Let's talk then about the message of this book. As we find it in the introduction in the first three verses of it. So note its genre, what type of biblical literature it is. Uh, in verse 1 it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, the apocalypse. It's apocalyptal in nature. It's Bible prophecy, yes. And as we read the prophets in the Old Testament, those books are very um, symbolic and figurative in nature, aren't they? And so it is with Revelation. Now, when we think of Bible prophecy, perhaps we think of prediction. We think of foretelling. That certainly is an element of Bible prophecy. But even the Old Testament prophets, they had God's message. And they were sort of like spiritual lawyers. They received God's message. They were to go out and prosecute or lay out in place of God himself to be his voice to lay out the indictment against them. Here is how you have sinned against the Lord your God. And then they would say, this is what God's going to do. You're going to go into captivity. If you repent, you get to come back. You know, when I first bought my, when I bought my first house, remember this, uh, the lawyer, he had 5,000 sheets of paper I had to sign. And he says, this one says, if you don't pay, you don't stay, you know. And it was kind of like that with Israel. If you don't pay obedience and homage to God, you don't stay in the land. And so they would be exiled. And that was the message of the prophets. But there was also restitution and the promises of his grace involved with that. The point is, prophecy can also be forth-telling. Okay? And there's that element within Revelation. And also, you see, he says there that these are things signified, verse 1, he sent it and signified it by his angel to his servant. Uh, that is to make clear, to predict. That's what the word means, to signify here. In fact, in Jesus' earthly ministry, the writers of the Gospels often say, He said this signifying by what death He would die. By revealing. And so, the book of Revelation, its purpose is to be an apocalypse, to disclose, and it took me a while to, to wrap my mind around that word. That's one of those confusing English words to me. Disclose what? To open, to close no more. That's what it means, to open up, to reveal, to make clear uh, what is going to happen. And to signify, to, again, to predict and make clear. So that's the type of literature that this is. And so to, to force... Always a literal interpretation upon the book is to start off on the wrong foot. You know, at the end of the book, it says that Jesus is on the horse and he's got this sword that comes out of his mouth. And was that going to be, you know, a stainless steel, a forged literal sword? Well, it tells us it's the word of God and he's going to, you know, smite the nations with it. So we, we have to be consistent or at least try to be. OK, what about its origin? This is important too. Verse 1, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the message which God gave to him, to John, by his angel, by his messenger. And it is in verse 2, the, the word to which John bore witness. And of course, testified about it. And so this is a divine 
message. It's from God. And so we dare not rip it out of our Bibles. We should not neglect it, as we'll see again in a moment. So what about its time frame? Well, I've, I've laid out to you the, the position that I take as far as the time frame and the context, a little bit of the context. Well, what does it say? Well, look there in verse 1. It says, these are the things which must shortly take place. And I have a footnote in my translation. That footnote says quickly or swiftly. And that's because the Greek word that is there, uh, tachos, means quickly, very soon, with reference to time. The same word is used in Acts 12, 7. So there you have the apostles, or at least Peter and some others in prison. They're in chains. The angel comes. He releases them. He loosens their chains. And he tells Peter, arise quickly. The same Greek word, soon, now. And that doesn't mean 2,000 years from now. It's the same word that Paul used when he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy three fourteen, where he said that he hoped to visit Timothy shortly, soon. So Paul didn't mean 2,000 years later. No, he meant in his lifetime. In fact, he meant before, obviously before he died and, and soon that he would visit uh, Timothy. And so it says, these are the things which must take place soon. Also in verse 2, it says, um, or rather verse 3 at the end, it says, for the time, the time of these things and their fulfillment is what? Near, in goose, near in proximity, in space, and in time. It's at hand. In fact, in Matthew 24 and verse 33, another prophetic uh, place in literature or biblical literature where Jesus is giving that all of it discourse, he says, when the fig tree produces leaves, you know that summer is near. It's around the corner. And so there are the things that are near, the things that must take place soon or quickly. And uh, in verse 19, seems to outline the whole book. In verse 19, it says, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after this. Okay? And again, what was going on? Well, the early church, the early Christian church, experienced oppression from two fronts. Roman and Jewish. The Roman and the Jewish fronts, as we've already seen. And yes, there was persecution under Nero. You need to read about that if you haven't. Look it up. Because Nero was a madman. He was, he was you know, crazy, I think, because of uh, his spiritual condition. Um, but he did some very wicked things. I think he had his own mother murdered. You know, he probably had, this is the rumor, he had Rome set on fire so he could rebuild it in his own image. Um, he blamed that, by the way, on the Christians. He had Christians impaled on stakes <clears throat> And he would set them on fire to illuminate his garden parties at night. He would put Christians in animal skins and put them in the Colosseum where the lions were as sport for his citizens. And so because they proclaimed the name of Christ, they would be torn to shreds 
by these lions. They were martyred for their faith under Nero. There was also emperor worship during this time in Asia Minor. You know, the people in Asia Minor, they were told, you must say that Caesar is Lord or be killed. Your allegiance must be to the state. But what did the Christians say? Many of them. Jesus is Lord. So, you know, I I enjoy talking to people because... um, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about politics. They don't want to talk about religion. I like talking about both because one can lead to the other. Hopefully, it's always politics leads to the Christian faith. But if you say Jesus is Lord, that is a politically charged statement. And it is true, as we'll see. There's also Jewish, uh, Jewish persecution. I've already mentioned that. So that's the context. But note also what he says there in verse 3. Blessed. Is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. You know, um, faith without works is dead. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. We are to keep the word of God. But there's this blessing promised here to be made spiritually happy and uh, prosperous. And uh, does the enemy want us to be confused? Does the enemy want us not to read this book? I'm convinced that 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 is the case. And so then, is there any application for today? Well, even if everything in this book were fulfilled and had already taken place, guess what? 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, speaking of the Old Testament, says these things were written for our example. So I would say yes, if they all had taken place, yes, it does apply by its example. But I don't think that's the case. And just by the way, just because something is fulfilled doesn't mean it no longer has significance. Uh, The death, burial, and resurrection, the cross of Jesus Christ is fulfilled prophecy. It has eternal significance for us, for God's people. And yet, as you read the book of Revelation, I personally think there are billboards woven throughout here and there. You know, when I was a kid going on trips, you know, for a year we lived in Ohio, drove from Atlanta to Ohio back and forth. On 75, I was so bored. I didn't have, you know, smartphones and hopefully, well, anyway, hopefully I wouldn't have had one anyway as a kid. But uh, not much to do. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And I learned to look at the billboards and to recognize, okay, there's that billboard. We've got about this many hours. There's that billboard. And so we have those in, in this book. And of course, it is a blessing to those who read it, hear it, and keep it. And so this applies whether it's the first century apostolic church suffering under Nero or Diocletian or whomever or if it's the third century church, or if it's the church during the Protestant Reformation, those Christians burned at the stake, or if it's the 20th century church, even Christians suffering under Islamic and communistic regimes, or the church in America today. I mean, there's no doubt we are in a spiritual battle. This is always the case. It will always be the case until Jesus comes back. That's part of the message. Okay? Yes, we are in a spiritual battle, and intertwined in that spiritual battle is guess what? 
politics. Because unbelieving men who rule in government, they want to be your God. The question is, who is your God and to whom will you bow? That's part of the message. Will the state be king or will Jesus be king? Look at chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Does that comfort you? Do you understand that statement? Who is over our Congress? Who rules over our Congress, our Senate, our President? Who rules over China, Russia, all seven continents and their governments? Jesus. Who is the Lord of lords? It's Jesus. He's the King of kings. And so no matter what resistance the church of Jesus Christ experiences this side of heaven, its advancement is sure. Even though Christians are murdered for their faith. As one of the early church fathers said, I think it went something like this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Part of the message of Revelation is Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. and The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even though you, as a Christian, receive opposition, as we as a church receive opposition to the advancement of Christ's kingdom, He will be present with us. He will use us to advance and move forward His kingdom. And so then, beloved, you can face whatever resistance is before you. You can face your circumstances knowing the promises and the victory promised to you. That's full communion with God, full communion with all the saints in heaven forever, and full joy. No more tears. That's gospel. That is good news, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving this book to us. It it takes hard work. It takes meditation. We confess, Lord, it takes your spirit, uh, the great teacher, the one who anoints us and gives us that anointing. We pray that you would lead us during this study, that it would be a time of great encouragement and confidence And where needed, a conviction of sin and repentance, but always great faith and obedience to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.